to everyone listening. Um, we're back again this week of um, August 5th with uh, our continuing our study in Ecclesiastes called Man's Search for Meaning. Um, now, uh, a decade ago, a dream came true for every mother who has had to constantly bother their kid about their posture. Something called the IntelliChair was released. IntelliChair was this mechanical chair that would form to your body with its um, little motors and mechanisms to create for you, the individual, perfect posture. It buzzed you whenever you moved out of optimal position. Via Bluetooth technology, it would communicate with the computer that you were working at about whether or not your typing position was putting you at risk for carpal tunnel. And among many other features, it also sounded alarms to tell you to take a break and get up and move around for a while. Think about that. A decade ago, this is before Fitbit and all, all of the apps that you can do to track and encourage you in fitness. A decade ago, this came out. First of all, to help you have better posture in your work at your workplace, but also to encourage physical activity. IntelliChair, unfortunately, was not a successful product. I wonder if it would be today. I don't know. But uh, 10 years ago, it was not. Uh, one of the issues was a difficult price point. It was, a li- it, was just, it was priced higher than the people on the market for something like that were willing to pay. But beside a difficult price point, potential customers also felt that the chair would actually inhibit productivity because of all the buzzing and, uh, and alarms and just they, they felt like it would interrupt th- the work. In Ecclesiastes, we've been reading a journal of Solomon's constant fidgeting to find the right posture for satisfaction and meaning in life. And one thing that we've said, and I think it's really important, maybe it doesn't seem like an important detail to you, but his quote-unquote research was richly funded because Solomon was the richest man to ever live, a trillionaire uh, by today's value. But inflation made what he was worth then uh, equal to what a trillion dollars would be worth today or more. Um, so he had everything needed to explore everything that life has to offer for meaning and satisfaction. He had all the power uh, being the king of this kingdom that afforded his riches. And so uh, we can be sure that Solomon left no stone unturned that we could unturn. I've, I've joked like what Solomon, because Solomon didn't have social media and an iPhone, he couldn't. He, he that that would that's the difference between him finding satisfaction and not finding satisfaction. I doubt it, right? Okay, so um, his research, just like the intelligence chair, everything everything he tried buzzed and warned him that he was not in alignment for an optimally satisfying and meaningful life. And so Ecclesiastes is this record of his exploration and his frustration one of the the themes is vanity vanity or meaningless meaningless everything is meaningless because in his search he found nothing that had meaning except one thing he actually gave away the answer at the beginning of the book but now he's working back to the answer through his research and he he said there's one thing to know god 
and, and to love and to serve him gives all other things that, that we might think would have meaning their meaning. That all meaning comes from knowing God and being loved by him and living as a servant citizen in his kingdom. Okay, so the last couple weeks, his notes, uh, the notes of his research have been moving in the direction of one particular theme, and that is when it comes to meaning and satisfaction, not everything is as it seems. So two weeks ago, we talked about how just because something appears glitterly doesn't mean that it is golden. It's possible to look like you have a glittery life and still be missing something. Last week, he kind of flipped that around, showing that by outward appearances, you can have everything going wrong, but on the inside, everything is actually great. And to illustrate this, he gave some bizarre advice. He said, if you ever get invited to a wedding and a funeral on the same day, pick the funeral. Not so you can get out of purchasing a wedding gift. No, he, he said, pick the funeral over the celebration because the funeral will spur you to take care of things on the inside so that regardless of what happens on the outside, everything will be fine. The funeral will cause you to take stock of what really matters in life, and it will redirect your trajectory to a straighter path, to a better path. Um, he, he says, essentially, a handkerchief is better than a hoedown. That's what we talked about last week. We all want to be on the mountaintop, but the valley can do us more good. So as we pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15, he's continuing in this theme that not everything is as it seems. Verse 15, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. So Solomon begins this passage by asking the following question. What's the point of doing good? What's the point? What's the point of doing good? He arrives at this very pessimistic question because in all of his research, what he observed is something that you've probably observed too. Life isn't fair. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've ever said that to your kids or if you've ever been told that as a kid. Life isn't fair. Solomon says, I've seen the good die young. And Billy Joel said, duh. And I've seen the wicked live long lives. And he, he, sa he says, that is messed up. It should be the other way around. A good person should get something for being good. And bad people should get what's coming to them. In other words, Solomon says, I don't like this because I think karma should be a thing, but what I've discovered is karma is not a thing. <laughs> Good people sometimes suffer bad things, and bad people often seem to make it out just fine. Um, and, and by the way, Solomon doesn't believe in karma for good reason, because there isn't karma. Jesus even points this out. Jesus came into a very superstitious society who, who, wanted, who wanted to believe that when bad things happen to people, it must be because they were bad or there was something hidden in their life and that they had it coming to them. And so there would be lots of gossip whenever there was a tragedy. And one time there was gossip about this tower that had fall down, fallen down and killed 18 people. And people were gossiping and saying, those 18 people, man, how unlucky to be at that place at that time. You know, it'd be like, it'd be like today, like being under 
uh, a freeway overpass bridge and it crumbled down onto your car and crushed you. Like that's the unlikelihood of being at that place at that time. And so they're saying, man, those people, they must have, they, they must have, they must have ticked off karma. And Jesus says, um, no, he says, actually, you better take care of your business because you could die at any time too. It had nothing to do with whether or not they were, things were right in their life. Bad things happen, but whether, whether or not you're good or bad on the inside does not determine whether or not bad things happen, but it does determine what happens to you after something bad happens to you. That's, that's what Jesus said. He, he says, karma's not a real thing, but you should care about whether you're good or bad because what happens after a bad thing happens to you has everything to do with what's going on on the inside. If you live through it, it has to do with how well you handle it and how well you're able to recover from it. And if you don't, it has to do with where you will spend eternity. So yes, you should care about what's on the inside, but don't get to thinking that in this broken world that things have to do with whether or not you're good or bad. So Solomon says, you know what, I'm not seeing the universe making any course corrections, and he, that's whack. That, that is vanity. That is meaningless. What's the point? Verse 16. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? So Solomon continues in this vein of thought. He says, you don't get any brownie points for sucking up. You don't get any brownie points for being a goody-goody. So don't knock yourself out on being religious. If you can suffer tragedy same as the guy not even trying to be good, then don't overdo it. If, that's, if, if it's true that the good suffer just like the bad, then viva Las Vegas, right? If the good die young and nice guys finish last, I'll be a bad boy. Solomon, Solomon suspected that that might be the logic that you would swing to, that we would swing to that extreme. If there's no point in being good, yeah, don't be, don't be over-righteous, don't be over-wise. So he responds, he says this, verse 17, Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? So now Solomon wants to confront that. He says, hey, look, evil does not create long life. The truth is, even if goodness doesn't guarantee you long life, wickedness does greatly increase your risk of dying young. Don't get caught up on the anomalies, on the exceptions. Yes, there are wicked people who seem to always get away with everything. But generally speaking, wickedness does increase your risk of dying young. It does increase your risk of drunk driving and not only hurting yourself, but hurting other people. It does increase your risk of, of making regretful decisions, okay? And Solomon says, don't, don't, don't over-rationalize and swing to one extreme or the other. He says, don't try, don't try to be good or bad, okay? Don't try to be good or bad is what he's going to go on to say in the following verses. We're actually going to come back to those. Solomon asks, what's the point of being good? And he intends to answer that question. But let's unpack the rest of his thought process before he does. He's going to start to answer the question in, um, in verses 18 and 19. But then, he's going, but then he's going to finish that thought in chapter 8, verse 1. And so we're going to go ahead and skip ahead now um, and come back in, at the end of this study. Okay, so verse 20, 
He says, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. So like, what's the point of all of this thought process, okay? Here's the point, is goodness is not a means to an end. Goodness is not a means to an end. That doesn't mean that wickedness, it, just because goodness is not a means to an end, though, doesn't mean wickedness can provide anything better. In fact, wickedness will lead to death. The point of this train of thought, the point that he's trying to drive home, is that no one is good. No one is good. Not everything is as it seems. Like, you can try, you can try to be good, but in the end, it's not, nobody is good. And you're still going to suffer the, suffer the difficulties of life that bad people do too. So religion is not the answer. Religion is not the answer. Because religion cannot produce the righteousness that God desires. God says his idea of good and ours aren't even in the same universe. So for example, Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Think about that. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, the heavens being the expanse of space, so millions and millions and even billions of miles, and if you go to the end of the universe, you're talking about billions of light years, which is trillions upon trillions of miles. He says, that's how much higher my ways and my thoughts are. And he says, so when you try to be good, when you religiously try to earn your way to me, when you try to find meaning in being a good person, Isaiah 64, 6, he says, all your righteous acts are like filthy rags. They're like dirty tampons. That's what that literally means. I know that's, that sounds gross. I know that sounds vulgar, like, oh, this is the Bible? Well, yeah, that's what God says. He says, you can't measure up to my goodness. You can't. You can't earn favor. He says, goodness, religion is no way to find meaning and satisfaction because no one is actually good. Because God's standard of good can be summed up in one word, perfection. Perfection. It's right there in verse 20. He, uh, Solomon says, there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Like that's God's definition of goodness is to never sin. Here's the thing is, you know, we say at the church, in the church all the time, you can't get to heaven by being good. Um, but what, what we really mean, because you can go to heaven by being good, but the only standard of good that is good enough for heaven is perfect. As long as you never, ever sin, not even once, not even a white lie, then you would say, but no one's perfect, Pastor Stephen. Exactly. So goodness cannot be a means to an end. It cannot bring meaning and satisfaction, and it cannot give you eternal life. In verse 21, Solomon continues, says, Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. So what's he saying here? He's saying, hey, make sure you don't listen to what others say about you. Uh, because if you did, you would hear that you're not good. <laughs> And you could just stay shielded in your own high opinion of yourself. But if you really want to be honest, you know there are people in your life that you feel think more highly of themselves than they ought, 
And you know that you bring them down to size in your own mind and conversations with others. You talk behind their back and they say, and say, who do they think they are? They're not as good as they think they are. They think they're so, but they do this and they do that. Well, guess what? People do that about you too. If you think, if you're not convinced that you're that bad, if you, if you're not, if you're, if you need convincing that you really can't measure up to the standard of perfect, just think about all the people you know that think they're perfect. And if you can see flaws in them, then doesn't it stand to reason that if you paid attention and listened to what everyone said, you'd probably hear some people pointing out flaws that deep down you know are there. You know that they're there. You know that you don't measure up to the standard of good. That's what Solomon's saying here. So verse 23, he says, All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am so determined to be wise, but it's beyond me. It's beyond me. Uh, so sometimes we think that we're good. We think we're better than other people. We think maybe we've arrived at some kind of standard of goodness. But the question that Solomon asks here is, are you sure you're not giving yourself credit for simply wanting to do the right thing when the truth is, though you may try hard most of the time, you don't always or even very often deliver, right? Like if you're being, a lot of times we want to give ourselves um, participation points when it comes to goodness, right? Like, well, I try. Like, that person, they, it doesn't even seem like they try. They're just, like, default mode is jerk, you know? Like, we, we want to, we compare ourselves that way, but the truth is, trying is not the same as executing. And that's what Solomon's saying here is, hey, I, I, I am really determined to be good, which, you know, that means I'm a good person, right? Because I've got a good heart, and he says, even though I recognize that that may be what I want, I don't deliver. It's beyond me to deliver. So Solomon says, hey, me too. Like, he's not just standing in judgment over us. He's saying, hey, me too. I set my mind to being good. I determined to be good. And then I get out of bed and blow it, right? How many of you are like that? Like, you wake up in the morning and you're like, I'm going to be good. And then somebody tries to get in your business before you get your coffee and you've already blown it. Like, you've barely gotten out of bed, and you've already blown it. And that's just the fact of, of, of our sin nature. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul continues, as, after he's kind of told about Jesus and the way that he's made for us, he's still running into this problem in Romans chapter 7. He says, man, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. What's wrong with me? Who will save me from this body of death, right? And that's what Solomon says here. He says, don't, don't give yourself extra credit just because you want to. This, let's just recognize no one's good. It's beyond us. Verse 24, whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who could discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand all the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. So he's saying, I've searched everywhere and I'm trying everything I can to be better. And maybe it worked a little, but look at verse 26. He says, I still have vices. He says, I find more bitter than death, the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. So he says, I still have vices. He says, you know what I, what I find more bitter than death? is women. <laughs> women, man, they they are my 
Achilles heel. They trip me up. And history records, we've talked about this in previous lessons. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines and who met, who knows how many more conquests, right? He's like ludicrous. He's got girls in different area codes, right? Um, and it's so easy for us to stand in judgment over Solomon. Like, well, I'm not that bad. I am not that bad. But I would submit to you that tens of millions of people have at least as bad of a problem with sexual addiction and sin, if not worse. See, I was sitting here just pondering, like, how can you go that overboard with a snare? But then I realized, like, I've been forthright uh, from the pulpit just about my struggles with pornography addiction um, in the past, and even presently, the constant battle of keeping lust from, uh, from winning in my mind so that I don't fall back into that addiction. It's, it's a daily, daily surrender to the Holy Spirit. And I just, as I was thinking about it, the God just convicted me like, hey, in our world, in, in the world today, there, we are committing the sin or we're falling into the snare of Solomon, even today, pornography. And so I, I was, re I've done research on this. Over one third, about 40% of the content on the internet is pornographic. And, and uh, about 70 to 80 percent of men admit having a more than a more than a curiosity curiosity type relationship with pornography at some point in their life and at least 35 percent of women okay so there are solomons everywhere we all are we all fall to the snare of sex and sexuality there are, it's digital now, but we, we have 700 wives and 300 concubines and maybe more. We're digital Solomons. So listen, like Solomon, we've resolved not to sin. We've resolved to just say no and just not do it, only to find that goodness is beyond us because no one is good. Everyone is a sinner. So like there, there's an informal way to greet somebody. It's to be like, hey, what's good? And, and maybe we should just all start answering, not me. <laughs> What's good? Not me. Um, and so that, that's the title of my message tonight. What's good? Not me. And we're not just sinners because we transgress, but we're sinners because we're hypocrites too, because we read about other people's sins and we stand in judgment over them. And, uh, and, and, and we, we think that we're good, but the truth is we're not. We're hypocrites too. Look at verse 27 and 28. Look, says the teacher, look, says Solomon, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching but not finding, I did find one upright man among a thousand, but I did not find one upright woman among them all. <laughs> so, so you could totally take this verse and like throw it at your wife the next time you're upset at her. No, you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. That would be taking the scripture out of top context. So here's what's happening here, okay? There's some debate as to whether Solomon is being tongue-in-cheek here or not. He's already admitted that no one is righteous, right? So now he's going to say, but one, there's one upright man among a thousand, no upright women, okay? So some say, obviously, he's being tongue-in-cheek, okay? Obviously, he's just admitted his snare with women, He's just said, women are my snare. And so now he's just continuing that thought in a tongue-in-cheek matter that he's bitter towards the things that he struggles with, okay? But if he's not being tongue-in-cheek, I want to be real clear. These are not verses to take to the bank and invest in 
the false idea, let me say that again, the false idea of male superiority over women. It is not a biblical idea. Um, and you can, you will, I'm sure you can bring me other verses. Some of you that may be listening, you might want to bring me other verses. But I will tell you that, that you are, you've been taught uh, with eisegesis, not exegesis. You've been taught um, a convenient truth for one gender to exert authority over another. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't give specific roles to men and and women. That God doesn't God doesn't uh, that there isn't a cl- there aren't clear that there are clear strengths that God has given generally speaking. But those are not um, those are not hard and fast lines that are to determine the way that society is. Ordered. And I don't have time in this discussion to go into the depths of those statements, but let's just talk about this passage. You, you, we can talk about that more later. Um, but just looking at this passage, there are two problems with Solomon's criticism of women, if he's being serious. It's highly unlikely that he is. But if he is, first, he's already admitted that he has a personal problem with women. So, so as he sits himself down on the judgment, judgment seat, we know he has a bias for his distaste, Okay. And second, it's not the alcohol's fault that the drunk keeps going back to the bar, right? <laughs> Women are lame. Well, yeah, Solomon, you're the one with the lust problem, bro, so get off your high horse. It's not there. You're the problem here, not them, okay? It's, it's, the same as, it's the same as criticizing female dress for our sinful thoughts. You are responsible for your thought life, and God is not going to hold in judgment over another person as though they caused you to sin, because you chose to take advantage of them in your mind and maybe go further than that, okay? Um, and thirdly, Solomon would be contradicting himself to say that men are more righteous than women, that men are more spiritually responsible, because he's already said, no one is good, and it does not jive with the Genesis account. Adam was standing right there with Eve, when she sinned. Don't believe me? Go read the account. It's right there in the account. That's not even like fancy uh, fancy sermon study, like reading the Hebrew. It's literally translated in your Bible that Adam is right there with her during the whole thing. He is just as complicit and just as much the sinner from the get-go, okay? Uh, verse 29, Man, did I get on a rabbit trail there, didn't I? Anyway, so here's something that we learn in this. The sins that we personally struggle with are always ugliest on other people. I think that's what we can see here in the text. Is Solomon maybe being, probably being tongue-in-cheek, but nonetheless pointing out just how easy it is. We, we hate our sin, and when we hate our sin, we also tend to hate the people we see it on, which is why I also don't like the statement, statement hate the sin, love the sinner, because if you hate the sin, it's going to be hard to separate the sin from the sinner, and you're probably going to end up hating the sinner too. That's why that's why the church has almost completely obliterated any kind of influence in the LGBTQ community, because we've spent so much time hating the sin, we can't help, we, we couldn't help but have planted seeds of bitterness and hatred towards the sinner in our hearts, and we, we've messed up in doing that. Our sinful natures do ridiculous things to our hearts. They can simultaneously lead us into all kinds of malfeasances while also being arrogant and self-righteous toward others, even as we are stuck in sin ourselves. Okay, verse 29. 
This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. So now he's going to deal with one more thing. He says, okay, on the topic of no one being good, some might say, well, it, didn't God create us? And if so if, if there's something wrong with us, it's his fault, right? And he says, ah, contraire. Lest we blame God, God did not make us with evil inclinations. He made us good. He made us in his image. That's original righteousness, okay? Originally, we were made with righteousness, with the righteousness of God, but we were also made with free will, and we used our free will to commit what in theological terms is called original sin. We rejected the image that he put in us. We believed the lie of the tempter that we that, that he was holding out on us, and we could have something better on our own, and so we rejected the innate goodness and that he gave us and he gave creation and we gave our dominion of uh, of this good world to the evil uh, Satan and invited into us and all of our offspring original sin. That is that we are born now with a sin nature that contends with the righteousness that God created us with. That's what Romans 5.12 says. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. So it wasn't there before. God did not create sin. Adam's sin brought death so that death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Isaiah says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. That's chapter 53, verse 6. And we can't, what Solomon's getting at here is goodness cannot be a means to an end because we are stray sheep, because we have invited sin and death into our lives, and we can't work our way back on our own. What Solomon says in verse 29 is he says, we have many schemes, but they all fall short. God made mankind upright, but we've gone in search of many schemes and invited sin into our lives. And now our schemes to get back to him are just that, schemes of evil. And we cannot, we cannot be good on our own. You tracking with me? This is kind of deep, isn't it? Now, when we seek goodness for meaning and satisfaction, we're not really seeking good because no one is good. The only way that goodness has any meaning for our lives is if it comes from Jesus, who never sinned. There is one man who is perfect, and that is Jesus. And like everything else that Solomon has explored, righteousness finds its meaning in him too. So here's the main idea of this whole thing. Only God can make you good. Only God can give meaning to goodness. Solomon wants to be sure that we're not confused about where goodness comes from. He wants to make sure we don't think that goodness itself is what provides meaning and satisfaction, okay? So, so if you, you are of the mind that, what's the point of being Christian? I can be good on my own. That's all a bunch of hocus pocus to manipulate and take advantage of and be a powerful organization. And certainly the church has sinned and has has exhibited that sin nature and, and perverted what the church was meant to be at times in its history and even today. But nonetheless, goodness comes from God and only he can make you good and only Jesus can show us the way to be good. It's his life, uh, resurrected life in our hearts, in our souls that gives us new life. And it's his, his life, the life that he lived on earth is our example for what goodness is, is like. It's his work that allows us to keep trying even when we fail, to keep getting up 
even when we determine to be wise, but do what we didn't want to do, okay? And that's what Solomon points out here in this passage. Let's jump back to verse 18. Remember, he said, don't be over-righteous or over-wise, and don't be over-wicked, don't be a fool. Here's what he said after that. He said, it's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes, okay? So what's he saying there? He's saying, it's good to understand that religious goodness, like attempting to be good on your own, is silly. It will just destroy you with exhaustion because you can't be good. But it's also good to grasp that going to the other extreme of just doing whatever you want is not good either because it will take your life early from this earth and it will cost you everything in eternity. He says it's good to grasp both of those truths. And here's how we live in the tension of that center way. He says, the man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. So he says the way, in, in Proverbs chapter 1, uh, I think it's verse 3, Solomon says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here in verse 19, he says, wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. And what is wisdom? It starts with fearing the Lord. And when we fear the Lord, we avoid all the extremes of being over-religious and of being foolish. There's a center way to walk, and it starts with fearing God, with knowing God, with reverencing God, with awing God, worshiping God, following God. Look at what he says in 8 verse 1. He says, who's like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? The answer that, that we find in the New Testament is Jesus. And he says, wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. So who's like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? The one who fears the Lord. Jesus was the first and only one to do that perfectly. Whose face is brightened and whose hard spirit is transformed? The one who fears the Lord. Jesus is the first and only person to do that. But he made all of his life available to us when on the cross he stood in our place for the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Father, forgive them. He extended to them to us, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, his righteousness. The one who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. And so, so many people have judged God on what they got out of goodness. Well, I didn't get anything. What's the point of good? Bad people get better things than I do doing good. And so they walk away. But Jesus is life itself, not just a way. He's the way. We, don't, we can't become wise on our own. We can't become good on our own. We can't find meaning and satisfaction on our own. We draw close to Jesus and we will receive wisdom and goodness and we will be transformed. We don't obey to be accepted. We obey because we've been accepted because he's already extended to us the offer of righteousness from God, goodness from God, and by accepting it, by becoming, by, by becoming a child of God, we are good, and now we're empowered to be good, and our obedience just further nurtures the goodness he has freely given us, and out of that goodness, out of that fear of the Lord and the goodness or the fruit of the Spirit, we will be able to find meaning and satisfaction in all other things that he has given us to pursue. See, all are sinners, but there are sinners who have been forgiven and changed 
and are growing and experiencing life the way that it was meant to be experienced as good. Because remember, God created all things good. But there are, and then there are sinners who have rejected forgiveness and, would, and thus rejecting meaning, satisfaction, and goodness that can only come from him. See, everything is meaningless under the sun, but in the Son of God, everything finds its meaning. And I wonder if you're out there listening to, today and want to be, and, 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 and need a fresh start of goodness, need new life, the way to life is to receive the gift that God has offered. And it's as simple as recognizing that only God is righteous, that I am a sinner, and, and, and confessing to God, I need your righteousness to start afresh and anew. I need you to show me what I've tried, and every time I set my mind to doing right and being wise, I mess up. Help me, God. Forgive me, God, and help me, God. You are Lord. I give you everything. That's, that's it. That's all there is to it. So, Heavenly Father, I just want to come to you in Jesus' name. And thank you again for your word that uh, is perfect for all time and all people. And, um, and just ask in Jesus' name that these things that we have studied today would go deep into our hearts and take root and that the enemy would not have power to steal it away from us or to, uh, and, that, and that the roots would find good soil that could, where, where it could go down deep. And we'd think about it. Lord, I pray that that, uh, that those who have questions would find people that they can talk with their questions about, that would give spirit-filled answers. And I pray, Lord, that we would root our lives in you and we would find meaning in you and goodness, uh, you, that goodness and mercy would follow us all the days of our lives as we put our faith, hope, and trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.